I spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious mergers and acquisition specialists around. And now I've decided to take the leap into buying businesses. The real questions are how will I do it? How much of the behind the scenes can we really show? And how can business owners like you maximize their purchase price and build generational wealth? This show is going to give you the answers. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we buy, sell, or merge healthcare businesses and physical therapy practices. I'm Dave Kittle, and this is The Dave Kittle Show. Hey, hey, welcome back to The Dave Kittle Show. I'm a little under the weather, got some allergies, uh, voices affected. We have a really awesome, smart guest here who's going to hopefully bear most of the load here in, in talking on this uh, episode. Today, we have Amit Aglani. He's a physical therapist, a previous practice owner who has sold his practices in the recent years. We're going to get into all of that. He's also working on AG Management Consulting, so you can reach out to him. He's a PT in OCS. And again, a previous practice owner who has gone through practice ownership, the transition of exiting his practices, and now working on several different things that we're going to speak about today as well. So before we get into that, Amit, welcome on. Thank you, Dave. And just, just so you know, I'm not actually in Maui. This is a screen, but it, it's a, uh, it's a picture I actually took in Maui. You know, we took off for a month and that's one of the benefits of, you know, trying to reach your goals and trying to get somewhere that you've been trying to. So yes, I, we actually went to Maui for a whole month and that's my picture back there for myself. There you go. There you go. See, if you're a practice owner, you got to listen to the rest of this episode to hear how you can unlock some of those things in your life because going to Maui for a week or two is one thing, but for a month is, is another. So that's awesome. Yeah, lots of mistakes along the way, and lots of things to learn. So hopefully, we can we can teach some people and tell some people things that I've learned not to do. Excellent, excellent. And again, because of my voice, I want you to just be long winded here. Tell sure. the audience of practice owners, tell them about yourself, your practice, how you change a couple things in the lead up to exiting your practice, and then you can go right into the exit story. I would love to just hear as much as possible so that other owners can learn about the pros and cons of your situation, any regrets, any things that you would have been done differently. Maybe you would have sold to a different partner. Maybe you would have waited and held your practices, or should you have sold even earlier than you did? Let's get into all of that in terms of you as a practice owner. Yeah. So being a PT and helping patients, I started my practice, I think it was in 2000. Four, and I quickly realized that I was good at treating patients, but I had no business knowledge whatsoever. So I started searching out companies that could probably help me to become a, to be good at business, right? And there was companies out there that said, oh, we'll train you to become a CEO of your company. I knew that myself, no matter how busy I got, and if I saw, let's see, 75 visits a week, 100 visits a week, I still wasn't going to reach my financial goals. So I quickly, quickly realized that, hey, you know, Amit Kaglani can only see so many patients. And even if I see the max number of patients, I'm still not going to come to my, my financial goals. So what do I do? So I said, let me seek out a place or companies that can train me to be a CEO. So it gives me the insight and the formula per se on how to do it. I chose not to do an MBA because in my mind, an MBA was theoretical knowledge. It wasn't applicable. Right. There was companies out there that said, you know, do CEO training. I, I don't think that company's still doing it anymore. But, you know, so I, I put myself into that bucket and I said, okay, let me go. So for five years, I kept going for training on how to vertically and horizontally integrate my company so I can just expand and expand to reach the goals that I had. So from 2004 all the way to 2017, I was building my company day in and day out. Towards the end there of 2017, 
in those last couple of years, I started noticing that ACOs in my area, hospital structures were buying over primary care practices and dictating, you know, where they have to refer. Now, we all know legally they can't say, oh, well, we only refer to X, Y, and Z. They say, oh, we refer to everybody. But then you get to know the front desk people and they say, oh, sorry, we have to refer to the hospital. And you're like, wait a second. That's not freedom of choice. <laughs> so you quickly realize, wait, you're getting squeezed out. And you also know that I had about four practices. I wasn't big enough to negotiate, you know, reimbursement with insurance companies. The cost of doing business was getting higher and higher, but the reimbursement wasn't changing. At least in New Jersey, for me, it wasn't. So you kind of felt getting squeezed. And what that usually means for a mom and pop practice is the mom and pop can't really get out of day-to-day practice. So I kind of saw that writing was on the wall. And I asked myself, how could I 10X my company? How could I get to where I want to without having to go back in and start treating patients full-time again and then just trying to keep up with the minutiae of just keeping up with the practice with an ever-increasing salary base that just kept going up higher than the reimbursement, which the reimbursement wasn't going up. And all I saw was more insurance companies giving every ridiculous reason they could to deny you. You're doing everything that they're telling you and you're not getting reimbursed or they're just delaying your your reimbursement or your approvals and things like that. So it just started getting more and more challenging. So I wouldn't say I did it out of frustration to sell my practice, but I would say I was looking at the writing on the wall. And one of the main things about my training was looking at the statistics. So if you're keeping key measures of your statistics, it gives you some insight into what's going on. And when you see certain things going on in a manner that you're like, wait, this is going to be very hard to continue going forward, I have to do something. So that's when I chose to start looking into what partnering with a larger company would be like, what we call a strategic, or selling to a private equity. I just happened to know some people that were involved in private equity, and they were literally starting to get involved in what they call a healthcare vertical. This one private equity company did not have a healthcare vertical. Okay, And in that process, it's a good thing and a bad thing. The bad thing is because they don't have a healthcare vertical, they really don't know what they're doing in that thing. And that's a risk. And I knew that that was a risk. But time and time again, I've, I've chosen to take certain risks because I usually like to bet on myself. Okay. And a strategic would have wanted me to sell to them. Yes, they would have made me a millionaire, but they wanted me practicing all the time. And I felt like with all the training that I did, I didn't want to just jump back in and practice again all the time. You know, I wanted to utilize that knowledge, but a, a PE company that's new and coming in needed you more because they didn't have that kind of background. They didn't have that knowledge base. So I chose to be a big fish in a small pond as opposed to being a small fish in a big pond. And yes, hundred percent, that was risky because anything could go wrong, but I was willing to, and I was also young enough to say, you know what, if things do go wrong, I can start again, you know? And I guess that's uh, it's a tough mentality, but it's also a mentality that you're flexible in the sense that, you know what, I can do it. I did it once, I can do it again. So I was willing to bet on me. And as we get started, it became very apparent that, yes, the healthcare PE didn't really know what they were doing. So I was really involved in the beginning stages, you know, intimately involved. And we went through a bunch of CEOs. We hired a C-suite and we went through that process. Now, prior to that, Okay. Prior to coming up to the sale, what I had asked myself is, okay, I see where everything is going with my statistics. It looks like in order for me to get to my financial goals and 10x in my practice, I will probably need to sell or partner with a practice. So I started loosely interviewing people to get an idea. How do they value companies? What are their measures? 
a lot of people were using EBITDA and EBITDA multiples. Now, year to year, the EBITDA multiples have changed, right? But you knew they were going to do it off of EBITDA. So for the next couple of years, I went to work at just making my EBITDA as strong as possible. I also went to work as making me as the owner, not integrally involved inside the business, meaning I wasn't the one seeing the majority of the patients. Any practice that sells and you're a mom and a pop and you're the one main, you're the main person that's seeing all the patients and has all the relationships. A PE look, looks at that as a risk factor. Hey, what happens if, you know, something happens to Amit or he decides he's walking away? Our whole practice is going to go down. So when they look at that, there's a different valuation. But if you're removed from that and you have, let's say, business development people who are procuring the business, who are keeping the relationships, you have PTs, you have clinical directors, they look at you like you have a business. You're not working in the business. The business is working for you. So the value of that business goes up, right? So fortunately, because of my training and because of just sheer perseverance, you know, I push for that, you know, and I kept trying to keep myself outside of treating all the time. I would jump in whenever one of our clinicians was going on vacation or if let's say one person left and we we need to get another because I didn't want the volume to go down. Because once again, I was driving the EBITDA. I was also making sure that we weren't spending because that would drive down the EBITDA. Now, your listeners who follow you already have probably heard the terms advats. Yes, I had a lot of advats because yes, I did the things that most owners do. Yes. Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I take advantage of the tax code? You know, it allows us to write off our cell phone. And the truth is, if you're a practice owner, honestly, you never shut that off. You never shut off your mind of working for working. You might go away on vacation, but your brain is working. That's the opportunities you get to sit back and sit there and say, Oh, what could I do better in my company? What could I do better? Honestly, that's when your brain's not working constantly and you have the opportunity to sit there and reflect. So yeah, I had ad backs that got added back on for different things that I was, you know, taking on personally. And that, that's how the process kind of went. And I chose a company that, you know, I knew the challenges I was getting into. I knew that this was going to be a little bit of a rough ride, but you know, I, I would help. And yeah, you know, it was rough in the beginning. It was rough because A, they didn't know how to do things. They hired a CEO that didn't have, let's say, necessarily PT experience. One they did. And then later on, that one had left. And they went through a lot of transitions. You know, as we all do, as, as anybody who's listening to you as a PT owner, you make smart hires, you make bad hires. You learn from those experiences. And the same thing happens even in this world. As much money as private equity companies have, they're not above these mistakes. And I saw that. And I saw that happening. But I was involved in setting up KPIs from the very, very beginning stages of the thing. I was involved in making sure I was a group director over mine, but I was also talking to the, the CEO and the C-suite at the time and trying to help. And you know, we would start expanding relatively quickly with things. And then as we got bigger and bigger, the challenges got bigger and bigger. And then you know, when we got to a certain size, I was actually able to start negotiating with insurance companies. But now I wasn't just doing it for my practices. I was doing it for practices across the whole country, which really helps because you're able to get their ear, especially with certain insurances that they were willing to listen because you have enough size of population that you're actually helping. And just for context, what were the specific years of leading up to you were learning how to optimize your practice with EBITDA? And then what was the year that you actually sold and exited? 7 July 2017 is when I actually completed the sale. I started on that process a couple of years before, maybe 2015, 2014. I started seeing the trends changing and I said, okay, let me start looking into things. Let me start talking to people. At the same time, while I was talking to people, I was working on the EBITDA 
you know, at the end of the day, we all know you're going to be judged by your profits. So if you're not profitable, that's not going to work. Thankfully, I was always profitable. And thankfully, we were doing some things right. And, you know, at the end of the day, you have to make sure that you're a good clinician. And if not a good clinician yourself, you have a good clinical team who's treating patients, right? And, you know, that was one of the things we had to make sure that customer service was our, our forefront. We're making sure customers were satisfied. We're getting testimonials and droves and we we're marketing the crap out of the fact that we're getting tons of testimonials. So at the end of the day, that never changes, right? There's no smoke and mirrors. You have to be delivering a good service and your, your customer base has to appreciate you and like what you're doing. So really, we just made sure that anybody that we were treating uh, that appreciated us that we were screaming that from the rooftops that, Hey, look, look at us. We're doing a great job. And we're not just saying it. This is what our customers have to say. And your clinics were hundred percent in network with insurance. Yeah. Yeah. We were, we were in network all of our, all the services that we had. I think maybe when, when the clinicians maybe had started with us because we had some challenges at a certain time of getting people in network. Um, not that they weren't allowing them. It was just such a backlog. Like, can you imagine hiring a clinician and you can't get them in network for nine to 10 months? And you're like, Oh my God, these are major insurance companies and you can't get them in networking. And, and you know, you're paying a PT a high salary to sit there, you know? So yeah, we were in network offices. You know, yeah. I, I looked and I evaluated the difference between in network and out of network. And for a private equity to get involved, their comfort level, as long as they're being fundamentally educated properly, the PE company knows that, you know, getting involved with an out of network entity has way more challenges in front of them, right? You know, you have a certain reimbursement. Who knows if that reimbursement is going to change? Deductibles are going up. That affects everybody. But, you know, the out of network climate is, is ever changing. So for a private equity company to back an out of network company, there's a lot of, what's the word? Like you're walking on sand. It's not an even footing. You you don't know what's going to happen. But in network, if you can have good in network rates or you could be profitable in network, there's just a higher comfort level. Yeah, I would like to explore that a little bit more because my mobile practice, we're about we're about sixty percent out of network and then forty yeah. percent private pay. So we don't take Medicare, yeah. we don't take anything in network. Now, of course, we're going to someone and we're doing sixty minute visits. So it's maybe a little bit different than two, three, four patients an hour in network right. brick and mortar. So it is a little bit different, but there could be some arguments against that, regardless of who the backer is or the sponsor, or if it's PE firm or strategic or whoever. I know a lot of corporates, like you said, are the corporates are buying in-network offices because that matches their their core Correct. business already. But some of the out-of-network reimbursements can be two, three, four, five hundred dollars per visit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But okay, so, so, so let, once let, once the once the patient now I know it's only going to be a certain amount, certain percentage of the population though. Some people don't have out of network benefits, or some people either don't have the budget or the discretionary income to actually hit their out of network deductible, or they don't want to. So yep. I want to explore that a little bit if you yep. like, because we have some people in the audience that reach out to me and they're out of network or they're private pay, yep. cash pay, and they're like, Hey, I would love for you to get people more on the show that that are buying out of network clinics or a little bit more content about out of network. So let's dive into that a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Because I've looked at both and I've really, really looked at both. And here's what you, here's the thing. It's not bad to have an out of network clinic. It just depends on where you are in the country and where you are and where your offices are located. If your offices are located in an area that doesn't have a population that can pay you that, then your clinic is going to die, right? Yeah, the areas that my clinics were in weren't in areas that people were going to pay out of network fees. 
you know, there is an abundance of in-network. And at the time, they were more of cost conscious than they were quality conscious. In, in their minds, everything is an apple. It's all the same. And no matter which way you spend it for them, they didn't see the value. So it depends on where you are. If you're in an area and the people who have out-of-network clinics that are obviously in areas that are, are filled with demographics that are looking for the more one-on-one treatment are happy to pay for that one-on-one treatment. Now, in their model, that works, right? It is sometimes a little bit harder to expand because you have to only put those clinics in areas that can afford that. So if you have a clinic, okay, and you have a concentric circle that goes around your clinic, you know, if you're in network, you're going to be basically putting more clinics in an area that are on the fringes of that circle. And that circle is your marketing circle, right? So if you're depending on in New Jersey, let's say the majority of people aren't going to drive more than five or eight miles to go to PT. And I would say probably closer to five, right? They're just not going to drive because the, the population density and the amount of time they're going to be on the road. So if you're putting clinics that are within five miles of each other in network, that works perfect. But if you're, you're out of network, your five miles might not serve a demographic that's going to even come to you, right? So if you have business development people or marketing people that are going out, it becomes harder if you have a clinic here, you have a clinic way out where, where you don't have any marketing presence and you have, that's a whole different marketing scheme, right? And when you're marketing to add a network, you're marketing to the mass population to try to get a small number of people to come to you. So you might be doing your marketing budget significantly goes up when you're out of network because it's attrition, right? You have to ticket a lot of people to say, no, 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 we can't serve you. We can't serve you to get the few that you can serve. That's one way of marketing to those. And the other one is just knowing out-of-network physicians. Now, not that there's tons of out-of-network physicians because their population is going to be the ones that will do that. You know, And it depends. You're in New York City. In New York City, you're going to get a lot more people that are willing to pay out-of-pocket. They're just used to it. They don't even flinch an eye because that's just the norm. Where I was, not the norm at all. Nobody would do it, right? So in your area, if you can build a base and you can build a practice that has a lot of out-of-network places and that is the norm, then you might find a sponsor that says, you know, this is just what the norm is. We feel comfortable in this area. Yeah. So I won't say it's a bad thing. I would say it depends on where you're located and how you're practiced. Now, you have more of a niche practice that is a mobile service. We were outpatient. We were dime a dozen. There's outpatient facilities all around where we are. And a lot of them were in-network. So for us to go out of network, either we're providing something that's head and tails above everybody or services that they can't get it anywhere else or anything else. And at some point in your practice, you have to decide I'm in or I'm out. Makes a lot of sense. And I think we could probably have a whole other conversation uh, once my voice gets better in the next uh, several weeks or months about just about this only. Let's go back to your initial offering or just general high level deal term. So did you sell 100% of your practice? Did you sell some percentage, like majority stake to this PE firm? Yeah. Just describe again for the audience, because some practice owners are looking to sell 100% and get out. Some yeah. are, they have the runway and the energy where they want to maybe take some risk off the table, spend a, a month in Maui, but still own maybe 20, 30, 40% of the practice. So are you able to go into that a little bit? Yeah. So I, w- I was of the latter. So because I was young enough and I really had a lot of energy and I wanted to take my energy and focus and try to build up the new company. I said, I was only going to set, I retained 30% ownership, you know, and with the PE's comfort level, you know, a lot of other people, you know, sold and only retained 20. I retained 30% because I thought I wanted to make it up on the back end. And what I mean on the back end is 
when you sell initially, it's based off your EBITDA, right? You get a certain multiple based on your EBITDA. But when you sell a second time, it's when you build up the new company and the new company becomes attractive again to other buyers. Now, when they become attractive to other buyers, once again, the formula is based off that EBITDA. So now your EBITDA is rolled up into a very, very large EBITDA. And that large EBITDA has a much, much higher multiple. So that larger multiple, if you're retaining 30%, is worth a lot more once you roll it up into a larger company. And because I was one of the founding people of the private equity-backed sponsor, I had a good share of the parent company shares. So what was the timeline between you sold 70%, you retained 30%, and how much longer was it until you sold your remaining 30%? Was it two years or what was the timeline there? 21. 2021 is when we ended up selling it. Okay. So the the first transaction was 2017? 17 and then, yeah, 21. So relatively speaking, it wasn't a very long process. You know, a lot of times PE funds are about five to seven years. And that's just based on how they deploy their cash and how, how they have to get their cash back. PE companies, and you also under, have to understand how PE companies function, right? It's not what, what you want. It's about understanding how the game is played. Once you understand how the game is played, then you'll be a, a better player. So... Usually in five to seven years, they have to turn their money around. So they have to grow the company as much as they can in that five to seven year period. Ours ended up being four because the private equity sponsor started having some issues, you know, on their own, not related to us, but related to some things that they were going through. We were just coming out of COVID. The time was, it was a frothy time in the market because there was talk about capital gains changing and things like that. So people thought, Hey, we need to take advantage of the sale now. In retrospect, when we look at it, people tell me very often, you sold at the right time. The highest point in the market was right around when we sold. You know, Some of it was by design. Some of it was by the CEO team looking at it and saying, this is the opportunity that we need to take right now. Some of it was like, we, it was just timing as well. Right. In 21, there was still some of that fear, doubt, and uncertainty though, because it was during, I don't know, like the middle of COVID, right? Yeah. But believe it or not, for you know, people are telling me that was the highest multiples that they were seeing right around that time. So either they feel like, and this is what PE healthcare PE companies are telling me right now, some investment bankers and saying, yeah, since then the multiples have gone down a little bit. Obviously we're seeing different turbulence in the market right now with, you know, capital markets and things like that. So that probably has a lot to do with it. Who's to say it can't go back up again. You know, there's nothing to say, but the healthcare market is just so huge and people see that, you know, there's so many more baby boomers and physical therapy isn't going anywhere. So, you know, for those people who are still slugging it out in private practice, they still have a lot of opportunities out there. And once again, I always believe if somebody's doing a good job, there's always going to be business available for them. Right, right. And when you had sold, you were saying a, a private equity company, but then I think on the last call that you and I had privately, I think you mentioned Alliance. So was it yeah. before it was named Alliance or it was Alliance for both of the transactions or, or how, did, how did that shake out? Oh, no, Alliance was the name that was given to the, the healthcare vertical from when we first started it. So when I first started it, I was one of three people that had added their practice into it. You know, it was kind of a lineup because you go through a due diligence process. And for anybody that has not gone through due diligence, it is not a easy, fast process. And I did it myself by myself. I didn't even use my team to do it because I wanted to learn. To be honest with you, I wanted to learn every aspect of it. And I learned a lot going through this process of due diligence and things like that and working with them. And I also learned that for private equity companies that have 
a due diligence team that is not focused or not doesn't have experience in healthcare per se when it comes to PT, it makes a difference. You know, the due diligence people that did my due diligence didn't have PT background. And I could see it by the questions they would ask and they just, they didn't understand. So, you know, for, for strategics, which are large PT companies, when they do their due diligence, they're PT based. So when they do their due diligence, A, it's faster. B, it's more specific and you can see, you know, they understand it, you know, and they can quickly tell you. But my experience was it took a lot longer. Like I started the process talking. So I started talking to this PE company prior to Alliance even existing because I was talking to the person who's going to be the CEO of it at the time, talking to them, literally talking to them on how, how we could do it, how we could work together, how it would look and things like that. Then they formed it. Then it became a marching pace of whose due diligence was done faster. I think somebody's due diligence was done faster by, you know, a couple of days. So they spaced this out, you know, so they went a couple of weeks before me, then I went, then somebody else went. And then we acquired a very large entity from the Midwest. And then we, we were had like 90 practices all of a sudden. Yeah. I was going to say, cause when I had uh, Richard Lever on the show recently, like they're up to like 110. So that's quite yeah. a joke. So this is, so this is years before Richard Lever had um, even was hired, you know, with us. So as, as a partner being there from the very beginning, you see a lot happen. You know, we went through a lot of C-suite people and we went through a lot of different, uh, a lot of different things as the PE company became more and more aware of different aspects of it. You know, the team, the team that brings you up to a certain point isn't always the team that gets you over the goal line. Right. So, you know, but being there as a partner and, and transitioning through it all, you go through, you know, some bumps and bruises uh, along the way as well. Sure. Absolutely. And so you mentioned EBITDA multiples, they can kind of change over time. They kind of go up and down. They kind of fluctuate with, with it. They went anywhere from three to five is a multiple. And it wasn't like the practice was doing something. It was just different timings. It was depending on how, how hot the market was, you know, how badly the market wanted PT at the time. You know, yes, there is a difference between an owner in a practice that has stepped out and is becoming a more CEO role. These are all small nuance balances, right? Nothing is an exact formula. Nobody's going to say it's only this number. It's only this number. Each practice has its small nuance balances. So somebody who's evaluating their practice, they need to step outside themselves and to say, if I was somebody else looking at my practice, what are the things that I would see? And every CEO thinks that their company is the best, right? Oh, I'm so good at this and I'm so good at that. But they need to be able to step outside themselves and say, well, what else? Everybody says, I do a great job. I do a great job treating my patients. My patients love me. No offense to everybody, but that's what everybody does. It's like these college applicants, you know, everybody has great SAT scores. Everybody has great, but what else do you do? You know, you have to be able to look at that and say, well, what else sets me apart? Why would a private equity company or a strategic want to value me higher. What can I offer? And it can't be, I do a good job. I'm a nice person. You know, what values do I add? It has to be something that fits into their vertical seamlessly. So they're not putting as much money or effort into it. And therefore they want that value. You have to be, and some of it's luck too. You might just be in a strategic area that they really, really want. You know, some people were coming after me because I had a strong presence in some of the towns that I was in because I was friends with a lot of the physicians. Once you've been in practice for a while, you become friends with the orthos. You become friends with the people. These people are hanging out with you. They're going on vacation with you. You're, you're going to different parties with them. You're, you're involved directly in that. Okay. For another person to walk in to take over that business, that's not so easy. 
right? And if you have business development people that have been literally going out there and putting your name forefront, it's hard for somebody to penetrate. So you're worth more now because it's harder for them to penetrate. It's easier for them just to buy you over and take all that. Yeah. In terms of worth or, or the value of practices, and you know, without mentioning the, the dollar amount because that's going to be personal to you. But when you when you had the first valuation, you sold seventy percent of your practice. Whatever whatever your practice was worth was, if you recall, was the valuation or the purchase price of that was it higher than your revenue mark? Was it lower than your revenue mark? Does that make sense? Well, well it's based off an EBITDA multiple, right? So you know, but, and but then the, those like, addbacks like, added in. Yeah, there, there's going to be those addbacks adjusted EBITDA, but my so okay, I'll phrase it this way: We speak with practice owners, and if they're doing a million dollars in revenue, and we say, "Well, okay, so you you just mentioned three to five times EBITDA, yeah, right for that practice." And if they're a one brick and mortar outpatient office, then rough numbers would be if they're doing a million in revenue, it depends on their adjusted EBITDA after the addbacks. Let's just say it's two hundred fifty thousand dollars after the addbacks. So times three would be $750. And if we tell them that as like the early conversations, then of course, we're going to go into due diligence. Maybe that goes up. Maybe that goes down. Maybe it goes up to a 4X uh-huh. if, if we really want to buy it. And then it then if it's then if it's a 4X, then it's actually a million dollar valuation for this million dollar revenue practice, right? Yeah. But if you... Now you had four. So maybe it was above... Maybe the valuation was above whatever your revenue number was. But some of the practice owners that we speak with or that listen to this show, if they have the one location and we say, well, 250K after addbacks, that's your adjusted EBITDA, the market, other buyers, we're going to start with multiplying that by three, maybe even lower sometimes, but it could be higher. But let's say times three. So the value of that practice, $750,000. And they're like, I'm not selling for 750,000. It's like, Okay, well, like, you know, then it depends on in the buyer's eyes, like, do we really value the physician relationships, the the customer experience, the patient experience, the technology, the referrals, the, the team, the culture, the online reviews. Then there's all the other things that kind of go into it, the billing, accounts yes. receivable, all that. So in terms of your experience with that original, you sold 70%. If you recall, was that valuation, now it might have been, Above your revenue target, it was your revenue number because of having four locations versus one. Yeah. So once again, it's the story that gets crafted before you go to sell, right? So when if you're looking at your practice way before you're ready to sell and saying, how could I make it look as attractive as possible? And it's not just the EBITDA. It's like I said, how does it look in your marketplace? Do you look like, do you have a strong presence in your marketplace? Do you command that presence? Are you offering services that are not just easily offered? Do you have a strong, like I said, a strong marketing presence? And in my case, I took advantage of the fact that this PE company was just getting started. They wanted you involved. They wanted to. So they were willing to push the envelope a little bit because they wanted to get into it. So as somebody who negotiates for a living, and that's what I was doing, and even prior to that, you're looking at all the value proposition things that you have that you can bring to the table. And one of them was, these guys are new, getting into a healthcare vertical they don't have before. I'm taking a risk. In order for me to take the risk, it has to be enough value for me. And that's what I said to them. I said, you know what? I think I can offer X, Y, and Z to you guys because of my experience in management, my experience in building a company. You guys don't have an experienced team. They're going to need some help. You guys don't have this. You don't have that. And I'm taking a huge risk here. Okay. You're betting on a horse that's already won many times over. 
I'm betting on somebody who has not won many times over. So if you want me, this is where I'm at. You know, you, you, so yes, I love I, it. I love it. It's like a negotiation masterclass. I love it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is, it is a negotiation. You're always selling like, look, you know, for people who says they hate sales, the truth is you're always selling. If you, if you're married and you want to go to the movies and you want to see an action movie and she wants to see a romantic movie, the only way you get in your way is if you're selling, you're selling your, your movie hard enough. But at the end of the day, it's a good negotiation. You're showing your value. And if you can't show your value to the point that they, they, they feel like that's valuable enough, then you can't get that. But fortunately, like I said, I looked at all of those things and that's why I was able to push that number up beyond that revenue model, you know, and they were happy to do so because they really wanted me that badly at that point. And we talked previously about that they might have been more likely or, or another buyer in that situation would potentially overpay because yeah. they don't have the history, the track record, they wanted someone like you who had experience dealing with physical therapists and building a team, building culture, morale, all that. And, and kind of you stepping from practice owner or operator to now almost like a VP or, or an executive, probably over more than just the four locations. So therefore, they're going to overpay and, and they didn't have that track record in physical therapy. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just an EBITDA multiple that adds everything into it, right? It's all those small nuances that you're crafting your story to make you look as it's not um, slapping lipstick on a pig here. It's literally making yourself look the best that you possibly can from all different angles. So if you're like asking for a number that your revenue does not you know, correlate to, but you have all these other factors that people look at and say, yeah, well, yeah, I see that his revenue is here, but if we put the proper things in place, his revenue could be here, but look at all these other things that he's able to do and what he can bring to the team or what his company can bring to the team and, and what they, they're able to do. So yeah, we're going to pay a little bit more, but we're okay with it because we're just getting started and we have a, a, a certain runway in front of us. Right. My voice hasn't uh, cooperated. So Amit, thank you so much for uh, taking the, the lead with all the conversation Absolutely. and the value and the help here. Definitely will be helpful for other practice owners. What would be a good place, whether email address, website, LinkedIn, what's a good place or several places for any practice owners in the audience to reach out to you if they have questions, if they want to connect with you further? Yeah, well, I'll take two more seconds just to let people know what happens to the person after they leave. Yeah, right? absolutely. Sure, because sure. Because that's important. Everybody everybody just thinks about selling, 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 but Please. what are you doing afterwards? So, you know, for me, I while I was you know, building my company, I was also uh, involved in some real estate syndications. And for people who don't know, syndications are a way for people to get involved into real estate, you know, without actually having to do the work. They're just placing money in there. An experienced operator doesn't, they give you a good return. So you're building up a passive income portfolio because you're used to putting so much of your money back into your own practice, but now you have all your eggs in one basket. I wanted to build other revenue streams as well. So I was doing that for a while. And a lot of my friends, as I said, are in healthcare. They're physicians or other PTs or other things. So as I was investing in different syndications, some of my my friends would say, well, we want to join you. As they started joining me, before I knew it, I would have like millions of dollars of mon- investable money that I would bring to in, in you know syndications. And I was able to negotiate better returns there. So I started doing that after I sold my practice. Now I actually do that. I have a a management company. It's a consulting company and we consult with different real estate companies and we really push the numbers to for people to invest and get these passive income revenue streams. So anybody interested in either that or just, you know, advice on on different things, but I'd love to connect. It's uh, my first name, A-M-I-T period, my last name, Gaglani, G-A-G. 
l a n i at a g m g m t i n c dot com. So it stands for、um, A G Management Incorporated. So it's Amit Gaglani at a g m g m t i n c dot com. For anybody who、yeah. wants to get in touch with me, and LinkedIn, they can just look up Amit Gaglani. I think it's O C S, and they should be able to see me there somewhere. Yeah, we'll we'll get your email address in the show notes. I mean, thank you so much for your time. I, like I said, I, I definitely got to have you back soon. I know you're super busy, but whenever you're available, and、uh, once my voice is better, and then we can、uh, riff a little bit more, maybe on the in network first, out of network, or some negotiation things, or a mix of different topics. But I know you'll probably be able to do so whenever you're、uh, available. Yep, I'd love to, and I know that you have probably a lot of people out there that do out of network stuff, and I looked into it a lot, and I I know a lot of different nuances into it, so I'd love to come back and talk more about it. Excellent, let's do it. Amit,、um, thank you so much for your time. Hey, it's Dave Kittle. Are you a healthcare business owner or physical therapy practice owner who is looking to figure out your succession plan or exit strategy? We might be able to help, and in fact, we may be interested in acquiring your practice. If you're interested, you can reach out to me. Shoot me an email at dave at conciergepainrelief dot com. That's D A V E at C O N C I E R G E painrelief dot com. Or you can call me at any time six four six seven eight one eight 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 four.